Hello, everybody. Welcome to Circuit 42. I'm your host, Ian, and I'm here with special guests Travis Miller and Scott McDaniel to talk about their comic, The Last Patrol. So, for those five, for those five people out there who don't know who you guys are, just to start us off, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, my name is Travis. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm an Army veteran, uh, and... I worked in advertising for a while, and uh, I decided to do this comic book based off, or a graphic novel based off of some of my experiences in Iraq. Uh, I've known Scott for 20 plus years, uh, so he was the natural choice to to do the artwork for it because everybody knows who he is. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Scott. Um, yeah, I, I'm a comic book nerd, a former electrical engineer, uh, but uh, my passion was always to to draw comics and. It turned out when I was in college, my uh, best friend there, a guy named Glenn, uh, ended up uh, graduating with a double major in English and psychology and took an editorial position with Marvel Comics. And we stayed friends after graduation, and, and he became my conduit uh, to send in artwork. And he would get it critiqued and reviewed, and, and I'd get uh, some really great feedback uh, to uh, to learn the craft. And after a while, I started getting little jobs. and. Uh, when I was given the opportunity to do Daredevil uh, on a monthly basis, uh, that's when I quit engineering and got into comics, and we've been doing it full-time since. I've had runs on Daredevil, uh, did a little bit of uh, Green Goblin, Elektra, and then jumped over to DC and did uh, Nightwing and Batman, Superman, Green Goblin, or Green Goblin, Green Arrow, Robin, uh, and a bunch of other things, too. So it, it's it's been quite a ride. I will say... Um, funny enough, we were, I was talking to somebody online about, um, Judd Winnick the other day, your, your run with him. I, I love it. Cause it's one of those that not a lot of people talk about, but I've always liked the very kinetic feel of your work. Like you and Damien Scott actually are two artists. I like who have that very stylized, very kinetic kind of work where it feels like it's always in motion. And that's just a run that I don't think a lot of people talk about enough people talk about just in general, but specifically also your work on there is some of my favorite. Well, thank you. I, I do appreciate that. It, that was an unusual run. You know, it, it was, um, it really tread uh, unique ground with uh, Oliver pursuing some political activities and um, just some of the backstory that was going on. Uh, it, it was kind of a unique time in, in the character's history. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess I can understand why it sort of has its own niche feel to it. Uh, but but thanks for the compliments to the artwork. I mean, that, that's always been the goal is that is to make the artwork really sort of dance across the page, have everything feel like it's in motion. Even if things are kind of quiet, to try to find ways to introduce gentle motion into, <laughs> into the shot. Uh, that, that's just part of the, the sheer fun of figuring out, you know, all the artwork for a, a particular story. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you uh, one one last question on this before we start to go in uh, to the last patrol in more detail. There was a uh, you did a one shot for the for the very short lived amal amalgam universe, and that yeah. was with um, assassins. Did yes. You, so it, for this is just it's just me or did you just go crazy experimental on that book? Because there's a lot of stuff in there <laughs> that I've never seen from any of your artwork before. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole thing was uh, very experimental, and that was really the fun um, flavor of the company back then is that, um, you know, th they all knew that I was experimenting with artwork, uh, trying to uh, really just feel myself out and grow as an artist, and, um, you know, uh, with, with that project in particular, uh, that whole experimental a mindset extended from top to bottom, you know, from editorial down to, you know, the, the production. And um, certainly with all the characters and story uh, creation that was involved with that, it was really just to think outside the box. You know, how, how do you mash these two things together in ways that uh, are, are really just fun and unexpected and uh, and then have the artwork really uh, try to, you know, take that fun, uh, unexpected fun and really just, you know, add some adrenaline to it and, and you know, turn the dial to 11, as, as they say, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was it was fun to, to just try some things you know, that are different. Exactly. And I think 
Uh, Travis, being the fan that you are, I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me that that book is some of the craziest in terms of his artwork, in terms of Scott's artwork. Yeah, I really loved it. Uh, it. It felt like a natural extension from Scott's work on the Electro miniseries, uh, Root of Evil. Uh, he was doing some really cool growth and development and experimental stuff, and that just kind of felt like a natural uh, outlet. Yeah, and I have to—I would say too that um, as an artist um, and as a growing artist, you know, I, I wasn't locked into a particular style. You know, I was always trying to learn and grow and improve. Every project that I took had really its own—I'm I'm not sure what the right word is—but uh, personality or, or zeitgeist. Um, so, for example, um, you know, Nightwing, very kinetic. You know, young. Uh, you know, Dick Grayson is is good looking, fun to be with, you know, guys want to be his best friend, all the girls want to date him. Um, and his adventures are, are living large, you know, he's diving off of rooftops and he's keeping a very light hearted spirit in those adventures. And so the artwork uh, took on that personality, you know, it became very youthful in its appearance, uh, but yet still muscular and strong and dynamic in terms of all the curvilinear perspective that I was introducing to, to give that dizzying sense of of, um, you know, spatial distortion. And then when I moved over to Batman, you know, that's a far more serious and somber book. And that directly impacted my art. You know, I, I went through a, a transition period, you know, from that rounded, youthful, um, fun, bright Nightwing approach to the darker, the angular, the, uh, uh, the spookier um, side of, you know, the style for, for Batman. And the same was true with, with Green Arrow and, and Robin uh, and all these books that I step into. Uh, the stories of characters, they all have their own personality that, that really uh, helps set the tone for the artistic goal that I try to reach. And the Last Patrol is, is among them. You know, that's a, it's a very dynamic book. It's a very serious book. Lots of action in it. Um, and, and so, you know, I try to uh, really uh, adjust my... Uh, approach stylistically uh, to to really deliver uh, the the pretty powerful story that Travis has written. So Travis, with that, um, now I know that you I know that you've worked in, in many different fields before. I mean, you've worked as an artist, like you said, you've worked a lot in advertising. How is it? How is the approach to this? How's the approach in terms of writing this, especially the being based off things that you witnessed firsthand? So my my initial thought from this came all the way back in like 2006, uh, and it, it, it took some germination and gest, uh, gestation because this is a, a very real story, and I fictionalized it uh, somewhat to protect people and names and try to drive up the the drama. Uh, these the events in the book all take place in one night. The things in the beginning of the book are more like a week before. Uh, so just to try to condense the story and speed up the action of what's going on, uh, that was really a focus. But also the story is very much about regular guys. You know, uh, it's not like Lone Survivor or the new Chris Hemsworth movie Extraction or, uh, you know, Black Hawk Down. These, you know, they're not Rangers or special forces guys that, you know, can survive anything. These are very real people that the story is based off of. Uh, and so my goal was just to tell the story of, you know, these regular guys in an extraordinary situation that unfortunately happened way too often, uh, you know, my time in the army. That answers the question. Definitely. And I really appreciate that because, I've come from a military family. My my mother, my father, they both served. Um, so did my both my grandfathers. And uh, it was to the point where the my second place I lived at, at, I was renting from a friend of mine. He was military as well, and he actually had to train a lot of the Afghan a lot of the Afghani uh, allies who were helping. And because of that, he saw stuff that you know he's just the most jovial guy ever. He kind of looks like if you took Brandon from the movie Up and made him an adult. That would be Eli. <laughs> but he's permanently deaf in one ear because of because of something that happened while he was overseas. And he even said, you know, 
there's stuff that you go through that really is hard to talk about. And you said, you know, there's things that I just won't talk about. And I like right. what you and people, what you're doing with, with this and with what stories like um, Sheriff of Babylon and things like that, where they're dealing with that, especially for those who can't really put themselves back through it, you know? Right. So this is kind of, in, in a way, my way of, uh, of talking about just, you know, some of the experiences. Uh, there are stories I'll never tell people, but maybe uh, there is a way for them to tell it other than, you know, just sitting, in a, uh, sitting around at a bar talking. Uh, and, and I know a lot of guys from my situation and guys that I've served with share a similar, uh, outlook. So I would really like to have an outlet for them to be able to tell people about experiences. Uh, Marvel comics did it, did it amazingly back in the seventies and early eighties and maybe even as far back as the sixties with the NAM, which, the uh, NAM was amazing. You know, when I was a kid, I, it was. And when I was a kid, uh, at a flea market, I found a giant stack of them and I fell in love with war comics. So I just fell in love with comics, period. But, uh, there's something about the NAM and Sergeant Rock that really spoke to me. Uh, G.I. Joe, you know, and those are all hyper fictionalized, but it, it, it comes from, uh, a place of reality. Funny thing is, I remember with the NAM, um, Doug Murray talked about it in an interview. And how that initial run by him before we all, all of a sudden started seeing the Punisher uh, just pop up in the book that was actually based directly off his time in the uh, directly off his time in Vietnam and each issue was in real time based off of what happened to him. So like when it first started at least it was actually it was almost almost exactly like each month of his life put into a different issue while in the service. Yeah. 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 But um. Yeah, I, I've actually been re, I've actually been rereading it on uh, Marvel Unlimited, and then I, as soon as he left the book, I'm like, okay, I remember this was when it was bad, so I'm just going to stop right here. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think books like that have to have a certain uh, the the writer has to have a certain uh, je ne sais quoi uh, authenticity. I mean, you're, you yeah, there has to be an authenticity from, to it. Yeah. You you can't fake that kind of reality. You know you you can't learn it from a book. You know that that's really the only kind of writing. You know experiences that you have to live to be able to to really tell well. Yeah, it, exactly. And like uh, I would be personally, I think I would be a terrible Batman writer because my mind doesn't work uh, in the detective novel kind of way. But you know Ed Brubaker's does. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that? That I think that was my uh, studio mate, uh, Sonny the Action Puppy. <laughs> okay, I was like, Scott, did you have a stroke? Are you okay? Oh no, no, yeah, he, uh, he, he doesn't. He doesn't like when I have the door closed. When, when he's inside, the door's closed. He wants out. And then when I close the door, he's outside. He wants in. Uh, so yeah, I'm trying uh, to I, quiet. <laughs> I just I just took it as the natural uh, the natural line of thought of Travis Miller writing Batman. <laughs> it's like all Batman does is just keep punching people. I don't understand. He's not solving any crimes. World's wor- I, I would be the world's worst detective writer. But I digress. Well, but I can tell you, uh, you know, I, I really have been quite fortunate to work uh with uh, some of the most talented writers in the industry over the course of my career. And Travis's script for The Last Patrol is, I I would put it right up there next to, you know, the the elite writers that I've worked with. Um, If you ever get a chance to see it, I don't know if if that would ever be made uh, public, Travis, but uh, when you read it, you know, um, when, when you do a, read a book or any sort of story, right, you, you, you transition from the the actual mechanics of reading to actually losing yourself in the story. So you're, you're not actually like reading anymore. You're just sort of experiencing the text. 
And once you get into Travis's script, it, it, it's really remarkable because uh, it, it is just so uh, lush with detail. I mean, it's almost like you can hear it. It's almost like you can smell it as well as see it in, you know, uh, 4K, you know, high definition. Uh, it, it really is uh, a remarkable script uh, to be able to draw from. In fact, it was so rich in its detail, I often found myself having to to make artistic choices and, and say, like, OK, well, how am I going to manage all this detail? Because it's just it wasn't really possible to bring all of it in um, and still focus on the the, the really intense personal uh, emotions and, and content that, that you really want the reader to focus on. Uh, and so it was it was just a. Uh, a, a wealth, an embarrassment of riches. I guess that's the phrase. Uh, yeah, it, it was really something. And in fact, that's something I noticed about Travis from the very beginning. Um, it, he indicated we've known each other for a long time. And, and that's true. Uh, we actually lived in the same area of uh, a suburb of Pittsburgh for a while. <clears throat> and it's uh, Travis, how old were you when we first met, roughly? 12 or 13. 12 or 13. Yeah. So when he found out I was drawing comics for a living, it's like I gained another son in the family. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I noticed right away is that uh, he was super sharp with story. He he had a passion to be an artist and he's got a lot of talent uh, as an artist. But I think his real gifting is storytelling and writing. Uh, He was able to articulate um, stories uh, in a sense, it was way beyond his years. I mean, he he goes way beyond the what happened to the why this happened and the structure of stories as they unfolded. And uh, I, I was always highly, highly impressed with his ability to understand story. Um, and, you know, it, it really is um, quite uh, impressive to see you know how that's matured and is now presented in The Last Patrol. So well done, my young friend. Thank you. I don't know how young I am anymore, but thank you. And, <laughs> and and that's that's the fantastic part about working with such an experienced penciler like Scott is that I can over describe uh, a panel or an action sequence or even a talking head sequence. And he can pick out the details that are important to visually uh, to, to, to visually represent on the page that. You know, I, I can draw, I can paint and so on and so forth, but I don't know if I could pick out those minute details or the texture and or the, you know, like once you see some of the artwork in this book and you see uh, the way Scott draws not only outside of our patrol base or our, our camp, uh, our fob uh, and the cleanliness and the tidy tidiness of it to an Iraqi street where there's dirt and trash and overgrown palms and stray dogs. He describes it so well visually and through such amazing perspective and texture that I really couldn't have asked for any, anybody better. Well, there there is nobody better. (laughs) The big thing that I noticed was actually um, looking at the pages that have been released so far and the progress so far is actually like you said, it's a lot of the little details that help build the story. Like things like the smoke, the um, stuff on the floor, when they kick into the house, you see like the toys and everything that are on the ground and the way that the, ex- and the way that the expressions really change. And really those details are what carries the story. Cause otherwise, otherwise you can base, otherwise you're just doing storyboards at a point. If you can't really nail, nail those details to add that texture and add that extra depth to it. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. And it's and it's actually quite challenging, too, because, um, you know, as you render characters, you know, you, you have the, the the full body that you get to work with. Right. You, you get not only their body type. You know, some some people are tall and thin. Some people are shorter and thicker. Um, then, then you get to the facial features themselves and then you get to the hair. And so all those combinations sort of work together. Right. To, to create a unique silhouette, and a unique sort of stamp that that, that particular character has. <clears throat> But with this particular project, a lot of that was masked. You know, the, these guys are wearing, my God, what, 50 to 70 pounds of gear. Uh, they're all wearing helmets. <laughs> and, um, so it, you only had this little tiny patch of face to really work with. <laughs> and so you, not only did you have to define everybody, 
um, and, and try to make them unique and identifiable, but you also had to do, uh, you know, almost all of the emoting through that little tiny window that was available to you. Um, so, you know, that was just, uh, you know, a part of the challenge of this particular project that was, um, you know, unique to it and uh, just made it a whole lot of fun. And funny enough, yeah. it, it kind of goes back to something that Travis said regarding uh, when, he, when you referenced the movie Black Hot Down, because a lot of the, I love that movie, but one of the big themes is the fact that the actors really had to work extra hard to establish themselves throughout the film that everybody did because you've literally got a bunch of a bunch of bald guys running around and sometimes <laughs> you can get lot like if it wasn't done by a director and really is clear in storytelling and someone like Ridley Scott and you didn't have that kind of cast it wouldn't have worked because right. you wouldn't really know what's going on like if <laughs> Michael Bay was doing it that movie would have been a complete mess you know but you had the right visualist working on it that 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 adds to it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, and you look at something like Black Hawk Down with such a huge ensemble cast, you, you go back and you realize, oh my God, that guy was in it. Like uh, Nicola Costa Waldo, uh, who played Jamie Lannister in Game of Thrones, is in it. And it's almost, he, you look at, you blink and he's gone. Or uh, Ty Burrell from Modern Family is in it, blink and you miss him. But it wouldn't be the same movie without them. Mm-hmm. It's like I always joke about that there's... That's that. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's it's that joke with certain movies where I rewatch them like years later, and I'm like, that movie would have cost a lot more now. Just to mm-hmm. pay those actors. Oh, yeah. Pay some of the actors. That's, that's another great thing about doing a, a book like this is I'm basic, we get to basically cast our own movie without... Uh, without restrictions of age or budget. As long as you're not doing what Greg Land does, where he just takes the actors, takes the actors oh, and or porn stars and puts them in there. Nope, no, nope. I can no promise you none of that. <laughs> I can confirm there are no porn stars in this comic. Um, yeah. It's like I don't know why Jenna Jameson is in Special Forces, but apparently she is now. Okay. <laughs> Well, pivoting like, off of that. <laughs> well, the sad thing is we've all we've all seen that in in comics, like with certain artists. But it's like, no, don't do that. And that's why I like about your works is that you, like I said, you lean so much into that style that you're not you're never going to fall into that trap. Well, Which yeah, I mean, awesome. I, I made a promise to myself a long time ago I would never trace anything uh, in the book. Um, I've been influenced by style early in my career and. And, and I yeah, promised myself I would never do that again as well. Um, and so really, um, you know, what, what you like to do is is create a consistent interpretation of reality. You know, what? how do you view the world and, and how do you view this particular world? And how do you make that consistent? And then how do you make that exciting? You know, and once you make those decisions, you just go. You know, you create. You get in a zone and you just swing for the fences. Um, and, and that's what I, I love to do. And um, and personally, for me, um, I find that artwork that is very photorealistic in its proportion and detail often just lacks that larger than life quality. You know, when I draw um, figures in action, I am exaggerating anatomy. I am actually, you know, arms and legs are pretty straight, but I tend to introduce a slight bend to them uh, that conforms to the body flow of whatever action the figure is taking. Uh, and that, that leads to its kinetic energy and its fluid uh, motion across the page. And yeah, and then you enhance the musculature, right? I mean, you don't draw every muscle that, that exists in a human body. You, you take those major ones, you know, the ones that look really cool, and you really pop those. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you end up with an image that is very dramatic when you, when you first take it in. And that's what I'm seeking after. I'm looking for that dramatic power uh, when you, you first lay eyes on an illustration. Exactly. And like with your artwork, one of the things I always notice is that it's stylized, but it's stylized consistently. It's not like some art is like you like looking like I think the difference between the stylized artwork and someone who just hasn't figured out everything yet is that is that consistency that this kind of thing looks like this works like this within its own space, within its own universe. And I think that's what really makes your artwork, part of what makes your artwork stand out. But I wanted to ask you, 
because uh, you talked to, you talked about different styles, different looks. Um, mm-hmm. Who are some of the people that influenced you? Wow. Okay. Uh, well, when I was um, a boy, um, you know, my mother she would go to uh, flea markets and buy you know stacks of comics. You know, that had the the, t- the title of the cover cut off. You know, as part of the return policy back in the day. And so they would sell you know, like a, a, sh- a brown bag full of comic books for a quarter or something. And so I, I would just take them and consume them. And, and some of my favorites were uh, uh, Jim Apero and Mike Grell, um, Neil Adams, uh, Bernie Wrightson, uh, you know, Gil Kane, you know, guys in, in, in that uh, generation uh, of, of artists. And, and then sort of later on, you know, it became like the Frank Miller and John Byrne. Um, who else was in that class? I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, you know, a lot of John Buscema stuff I thought was really beautiful. His, oh, yeah. his Conan stuff was just, I, I don't know, man. I lost myself in all that Conan stuff. I've been um, going back and reading. Yeah, his, uh, those were Sorry. No, that's a, yeah. What was that? I, I was saying I've been going back and reading his um, his Wolverine run with the Claremont from um, Marvel Comics Presents and the first issues of the uh, Wolverine Omniland. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was really it. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I, I would memorize a drawing. Uh, I mean, Jim Apero, you know, he was hands down my favorite Batman artist as a kid. And so I, I would draw like a, a cool Jim Apero Batman, you know, and I'd study it and I'd draw it at night. And then the next day I'd go into school and I'd reproduce it. I'd just be sitting at my desk and I'd draw this Jim Apero Batman. And, and everybody would be like standing around me watching like, oh, man, that's so cool. <laughs> So I became known as, you know, quote unquote, the artist, you know, in class. And that was kind of cool. <laughs> I, I love how you, I love how you, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I love how you speak on this very casually. And then it's like, yeah, I can do that. I'm like, I'm going to recreate this Batman. And I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's Batman. <laughs> do you see? He has a bat symbol that looks like a squirrel. No, it's Batman. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then there's Scott, who's like. Nah, I made I drew Batman in class the other day because I saw it in a picture and I made, and I drew it, and I'm, and he's like that's just pretty basic and I'm like nah nah that's not basic. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot from that. Um, you know, I I, I didn't uh, copy their style, but you know, reproducing those images as a kid, you know, really did help uh, me to to start learning about proportion, you know, uh, head proportion, body proportion. Um, and dynamic figures and, and all that stuff. And so, you know, that just sort of got my toe in the door. And then I had to do some study, you know. Um, at some point, you can't just coast on natural ability. Some, at some point, you have to actually determine to, to learn some things. And so I, I bought some books, and um, I, I bought a lot of the Bern Hogarth books uh, to, to see how he had uh, broken down the human body. And, um, and lately, or, or not lately, but later, uh, I bought some uh, artists' uh, books uh, that were really nice. They, they were uh, um, photographs of uh, bodies in positions, and, and next to the body uh, photograph was a like a medical drawing of the the major minor muscle groups that were you know mimicking that photograph, so that you could see exactly you know through the skin you know where those muscles were um, and, and how they all sort of interrelated with each other, and uh, and so. Um, that was really, really helpful to, to fill in the, the gaps, you know, because there's only so much you can learn, um, you know, by reproducing uh, either comic art. You know, that, that has its utility, but it ends, you know, at a, at a pretty early point. And then you have to go to stuff like, you know, uh, bodybuilding magazines, you, you know, where you get that really exaggerated musculature so you can see a lot of that those um, connections and overlaps and, you know, how it's all kind of intertwined. And then you go maybe to the, to the medical stuff where you really see attachment points and, and uh, you know, all the really subtle details. So you're aware of them. You don't have to draw them, but you should know, you know, where they are so that as you draw your, your figures, uh, they, they still conform to that underlying um, understanding. You can exaggerate it, uh, and you'll know when that exaggeration has gone too far. You know? <laughs> when you start breaking some of the uh, the things underneath, then, then you'll know you, you should rein it in a bit. Um, but uh, but yeah, that, that's the process that you have to go to. And, and so once you have all that as a working knowledge, and then it really gets fun because 
then you begin to make your own mark. It's like, well, this is how I see figures and this is how I see faces and this is how I like to see them move. And this is the kind of car I like to see them sitting in and driving. And this is the kind of plane I like to see them flying. And these are the kind of buildings I like to see them jumping off of. <laughs> and so, you know, as you as you go and encounter all these different elements, you figure out how you like to see them. And then they become part of your toolkit. And then after a while, with enough experience, you know, you really have um, that that consistent world kind of figured out in your own head. And then you can really just go to town with it. And and that's where it really gets super, super fun. Because it's very much about building not just your style as an artist and your work, and your, your work but your identity as an artist, really. Because if, you, if you're somebody who just... Like one of the one of the big things I noticed with more forgettable artists, especially during the '90s, was that they would just ape other artists. And by doing it this way, and by doing it the way artists, in my and this is my opinion, there are other artists who don't do this, but in, art, in a way that artists should, that's how you create an identity, and that's how you stand out. Mm-hmm. I, I agreed. You know, there was a couple of dynamics early on. I think uh, the the studio system. I think was really getting popular when image broke off of, uh, of Marvel and, and those guys, um, the founders had set up some studios. I, I think a number of them had, um, you know, they, they would bring in artists and they would train artists and, and the purpose of those artists were, were to help, you know, the, the founder, um, uh, create product. And, and so, you know, those young guys were learning in the style of the founder and, you know, that really helped those guys. Uh, cause I saw that there was some value, in my own career, you know, as I was a young guy working on Daredevil, um, everything was new. I mean, it was it was like it was truly like a roller coaster, right? It was exciting and terrifying at the same time because I had to figure out how to draw everything for the first time. Like every every story page, something new I've never drawn before. <laughs> uh, and so um, when I saw Frank Miller's work when he was doing that really high contrast style, that really um, helped me because that's you know my mind works that way it, it it never worked in that in that 90s hyper line detail style my mind just does not work that way and you know by looking at uh frank miller's work and you know he had you know one light source dominant and, and maybe a secondary light source you know a small one just to you know provide some bounce lighting and stuff um, that really helped me understand the value and power of lighting and, and how you use that to shape form, um, you know, really with, with, with big masses so that there's a lot of black in the artwork, solid black, uh, because that makes for a much more dramatic and powerful image. And so, you know, once I learned those lessons, I was like, I, I can't do this. I, you know, I got I to gotta separate from that because, you know, that's really ground that, that Frank had uh, created and, and was playing in. And, and he deserves to have that. Um, and, and so I, I tried to take the lessons learned off into my own space just for the, same, the reason that you said, that um, it, it's, it's way better to take a chance and live or die by your own artistic style than it is to, you know, try to emulate and be derivative of a, a a very popular and successful style, because chances are, as a derivative, you're not going to be better than the original. <laughs> and if people want that style, well, they'll go to the guy who who did it first and better. Um, and so, I, I just think it's wise to um, be patient with yourself, really figure yourself out, carve out your own artistic niche. And, and live or die by it. Um, so. And it's definitely it's definitely there. Like you look at it, like a lot of the artists from that era, there seemed to be almost this. Um, I want to get your guys' opinion on this too. There's seems to be this uh, this thing that they would lean toward heavily towards a lot of thin lines and a lot of their artwork, like a lot of thin pencil lines, mm-hmm. and you can clearly see that to try to. Make things, I don't want to use the word extreme because it's such an overused word for that era, but like using a lot of the thin lines mixed with cross-hatching to try to do that. And with your work, I've noticed that there's a lot of, you create a lot of room for contrast, especially when working with your inkers. And yeah. it's, I see a lot more of that and a lot less of like a lot of the thin pencil and cross-hatching reliance I see from a lot of, a lot of artists, even still today. 
Oh, absolutely. Because my mind doesn't work that way. Interestingly, um, I, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but um, if you go back to uh, Daredevil, um, oh goodness, was is it three nineteen? That was the start of Fall from Grace. Oh my goodness, yeah. I'm showing I'm showing my age. I, I think that's three nineteen. I love the work on that. Yeah, yeah. It, that's the one with the Chrysler building and yeah. the little red Daredevil falling off. <laughs> that cover is beautiful. It's one, still one of the favorite. Oh, thanks, covers. bro. Yeah, well, a big shout out to Pat Garrahy. Um He was. Um, Ralph Macchio's assistant editor at the time, and he's a very artistic guy. And, you know, uh, the, the, the core concept of, of doing these minimalistic covers was driven by Pat. And so, you know, we would together, you know, create these cover sketches and work through them. And, and so, um, yeah, big, big shout out to Pat because those covers were really, really striking. But um, uh, in the middle of 319, you'll see like halfway through I'm, I'm experimenting with as much liney detail as, as I think I could stomach for myself. And the other half of the book is the more high contrast style. And I'm trying to figure out like how, w- which path am I going to go? And I tried to do it in a way where I assigned the liney stuff to certain type of content in the story and the more graphic content to another uh, 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 group of related content in the story. So it wasn't like Helter Skelter throughout. It, it sort of made sense as you read through it. Uh, but uh, through that experiment, it, it was clear to me that the high contrast way is the way I, my mind thinks. Um, I, I think in terms of uh, shapes, massive shapes defined by hard light sources um, and, and deep shadows. So, so bright highlights, deep shadows, and very minimal uh, lighting, you know, not a lot of this spotlighting and bounce lighting and accent lighting. And there's, you know, there's, you know, red, red on this character and blue on this character and green over here and it, these rim lights. And so it, it was like there was lights everywhere that you couldn't see in the artwork. Um, it had, it looked fantastic, but, you know, my, my brain just didn't process um, the, the scene that way. And, and so um, I decided to, to take that, you know, that, Paul Galassi style, you know, where it was um, a little cleaner in its line. But I do have to tell you, I personally, I think um, the, the style in which I chose to work is actually more difficult in a certain way than the liney work. And, and that is because there are uh, a minimum of lines. Uh, mistakes are far more visible. Like I, I look at a lot of artwork that has a, that ton of lines and it tricks your eye. You know, it, it dazzles your eye with all this detail. And what it does is it masks the asymmetries, the, 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 the poor proportion, um, the, the misaligned features, um, because it looks cool, but it's, it's wrong. Uh, whereas, you know, my artwork, because it's, it's far more simple in it's utility of line, uh, those kinds of, of errors are far more noticeable. So it's been quite a challenge to, um, to execute that really well. But at the same time with like, with you and a lot of, uh, the artists, either classic artists or artists who lean into that classic style, people like, um, David Aja, having that, that having, bringing that rendering back allows for clearer storytelling. That's, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I consider myself a storyteller first, artist second. Like if I draw beautiful illustrations, and I like the the reader cannot make sense of what it is I'm drawing, then that is an epic fail as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I've actually done a lot of work, uh, and some of it on DC, helping some really talented artists. Uh, kind of get get a really uh, more solid understanding of visual storytelling. These guys were mm-hmm. tremendous illustrators, but but they really struggled with, you know, how you take the written script and, and turn it into a set of drawings, you know, uh, because there are rules. You know, you, you, you just don't do whatever you want. Um, you, you have to understand the space in which the scene is taking place in. Then you have to understand the direction of travel that your character or characters or ensemble or whatever, what have you, are, are traveling through that scene. Then you have to define the spaces where all your cameras can be so that you don't break the direction of travel through the scene. And then you have to look at the individual interactions of the characters to make sure you establish them properly and you don't break the direction of, of their interactions with each other. 
And so there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, I don't know, math, I'd say. <laughs> there's a lot of decisions and a lot of elements and details that need to be managed uh, beyond just drawing a really killer picture. And, and that to me is, is uh, really, um, truly fun. It, it's really trying to take all those, all those variables and what is the most appropriate way to, to visually tell that, that scene. Is it a quiet scene? Well, how do you get the most emotion out of it? Is it a, is it a dramatic action scene? Well, how do you get the most power out of it while still obeying all those rules uh, of visual storytelling throughout the entire scene? Gotcha. That, yeah, it's very it's very much a blend of the creativity and the technical that you have to have. But um, yes. uh, Travis, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you because um, I know you talked about the personal more of the personal elements that went to the Last Patrol. But as a from the from, you know like with Scott from like a t- from a technical area from a writer area, how did you get to where you are now in terms of your uh, com- in terms of your comic work in terms of your writing? Because you've worn many hats, to put it mildly. Yeah, so I've uh, it, my uh, my old advertising agency they called me the Swiss Army knife, <laughs> because if and even in my military career, if somebody didn't know how to do something, they would just turn to me and like, hey, Travis, what do you know about this? I I don't know nothing. Okay, we'll figure it out and do it. Uh, so, like I started off as just a, a you know, production artist, uh, and then graphic designer in, a, in an ad agency, and then next thing I know, I'm producing television commercials. And it's just the natural evolution. Uh, and as far as writing, it just kind of came to me naturally. Uh, like Scott said a while ago, uh, when I was a kid, and just buying comics and just consuming them, and then I'd go and tell Scott, because Scott wasn't reading them, he was drawing them. So he doesn't know what's going on with X-Men. And I, you know, go on these long, you know, rants about how this relationship between Psylocke and uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey and all this, you know, other stuff. And he'd be like, you're really good at telling the stories. So, you know, let's keep working on that. Uh, And then, you know, reading books. uh, Scott gave me a copy of Story decades ago uh, by Robert McKee. and it's kind of it, it, it's kind of like the PhD level of uh, save the cat, right? So it explains how to set up story, how to tell a story, where your arcs should be, and all that. Uh, but with this particular story, the Last Patrol, it fits some of the typical things that you would see in uh, a war movie or. You know, any piece of fiction, you know, there's an inciting incident, there's a, uh, action, there's this and that, and a second, uh, you know, end of the second act uh, downturn. But there's a whole other element that there's no MacGuffin. So it becomes uh, – so with a lot of movies, there's a MacGuffin, right? Like the latest Chris Hemsworth movie is the last thing I've seen. Uh, extraction. There's a kid that's a MacGuffin, right? Uh, and the MacGuffin, for those listening that doesn't know, uh, it's the object that your antagonist and protagonist care about, but the audience actually really doesn't, uh, and they're just trying to move it from point A to point B, or like, get the like, MacGuffin. Like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. That's a perfect example. The bri- Yeah, the briefcase, the Maltese Falcon, the Infinity Stones. You know, nobody actually cares about the Infinity Stones except for Thanos, right? Yeah. Uh, you just want to see your characters interact and have that conflict between each other with the last patrol. Uh, I intentionally wrote it. So you don't see, uh, the enemy forces too much, uh, and that they become more of a environmental element. So the story really goes from man versus man to man versus nature or man versus environment. Uh, and I did that with a very intentional purpose that <clears throat> years and years later, I, I, I never saw the Iraqi people, uh, whether they were part of the insurgency or uh, Sunni militia or Shiite militia or Iraqi soldiers or former soldiers. I never saw them as evil. 
throughout all of my deployments, I, I never saw them as evil. They're people with their own intentions and motivations, just like me. We just happen to be in opposition to each other. Uh, and so it was very important for the last patrol that I did not make them out to be evil. Uh, I actually didn't want to show them at all, but there's a point where you have to set up what's going on. Right. Uh, so it's, it's a very tricky thing as a writer to not have something that's pure, that, that is trying to hurt you be interpreted as evil, right? <clears throat> One of my favorite genres is like zombie movies because a zombie movie is never about the zombies. It's always about the antagonist protagonist interaction between each other or uh, man versus environment because the zombies eventually just become an environmental hazard. Right? Exactly. And I was going to say like at least in the one of the best examples for that are the are the initial three Night of the Living Dead movies by George Romero? Because mm-hmm. it paints it so beautifully. Because you rewatch those, none of those are about zombies at all. Oh no! There's no. so much subtext and outright text. Because I love George Romero, but George Romero is not particularly subtle. But he's still a good storyteller. <laughs> but there is that subtext if you look for it. I mean, and I know he tries to deny some of it, especially in Night of the Living Dead, but it's like, you're only, you were only denying it at that time because of the controversy that could have come from it, unfortunately, but it's there. It's on the screen. Right. Uh, it, the uh, original Night of the Living Dead from 67? Yeah? Yeah, 60, 67, 68. Okay. It, <clears throat> that's basically, if, if you look at it in terms of modern movies or television, that's basically a bottle episode. You know, you have your environmental hazard, so nobody goes outside, except for very rare occasions. And then it's all character interaction between each other. And the antagonists and protagonists present themselves very clearly. Uh, and that, and that's really something I wanted to do with The Last Patrol. Obviously, it's not a bottle episode of anything, but it's more about the interaction between the soldiers and the need to survive uh, and the need to escape the situation that they're in without actually making uh, anybody out to be a bad guy, right? Because uh, even though the Iraqi insurgency, and, you know, I was there for the initial invasion and, uh, you know, two years later and then two years after that, uh, I never... mm, Sorry, I'm trying to find a way to put this. Uh, it's it's easier when you're a writer and you can just delete. Okay, go back. Uh, <laughs> well, can, can I can I interject for a second? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Um, I think one of the refreshing things that I found about it is that uh, it's not a political story. Okay? What Travis said was actually was right on the money. That there's really interesting parallels between the motivation of some of the characters on the American side and some characters on the Iraqi side. And so what you, you have are people that are doing what they think is right and the things that they think that they have to do to survive. And, and it just so happens that, that those motivations are in direct conflict, uh, conflict with each other. And so uh, what you end up with is, is a far more human story. Um, than, you know, just, you know, uh, you know, gung-ho America against the, you know, the evil Iraqis. It's not quite, you know, um, it's, it's far more complicated than that. And I think far more interesting uh, because of the way he chose to to set up those uh, uh, conflicts. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I can get a little too verbose and talk around myself. But it's interesting because it, you made them people, and, and and that's the thing. You know, they they are in, in a sense. You know, much of the conflict you know takes that environmental danger, but um, you, you never lose sight of the fact that the, these things are they're real people, and and so um, there's a there's a different level um, that you've added to them that I, I thought was was pretty cool. 
I tried, especially with the opening scene, which, you know, uh, <clears throat> kind of sets up the, the entire story. Uh, a, a group of American soldiers pr- uh, conduct a raid on... Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, wait, wait. <laughs> so, spoiler alert, you can go to uh, Indiegogo uh, and search The Last Patrol, and you can see the first three pages, so you can see what I'm talking about. But uh, so a group of American soldiers conduct a raid on what they think is a bomb factory or uh, an IED factory, and like Ian had said earlier, you see toys in, the, in there, and there's a small child. It's because this guy uh, that we call the engineer he's just trying to provide for his family. And as, you know, things in Iraq didn't go so well, there weren't so many engineering jobs, you know, what's the point of building uh, a bridge if it's just going to get blown up? So he did the only thing that he could to provide for his family. And that's a very human thing. Uh, it's it's a survival thing. And it, it, we use that to, to set up what's coming next, not just, you know, with the Iraqis, but with the American soldiers that, they're just trying to survive, you know, and this is as real to life as I can get uh, about that. Uh, I think it just adds so much to it because while uh, while Assault on Precinct 13 is one of my favorite movies, you would not want to write something like this, like Assault on Precinct 13, where it's literally a bunch of like faceless people outside trying to get us while we're inside. And right. because you lose the reality. You know, once you start doing that. Yeah, and, it, and it's very important for a story like this to be as grounded in reality as possible. Like I said, I fictionalized it uh, to a degree and changed the timeline of some things to make more sense in the story. Uh, and I even wrote myself out of it uh, so that I didn't come off as, you know, making myself out to be some big damn hero or whatever. Uh, it's just so people don't focus on me as the writer, but there's me as the character in, in here that's just doing, you know, what I have to. And, you know, a cigar to whoever finds me. <laughs> exactly. So I know you already, you talked about, you've talked about the Indiegogo page. And uh, is there anywhere else that anyone can find any additional information on the story? Or is all that specifically focused on that page for right now? Uh, it's all focused directly on the page right now, uh, and it's on Indiegogo.com. Uh, just search The Last Patrol. Uh, we're running through June 1st, uh, so all your listeners have time to check it out. Uh, and I'm going to be adding some more work to it, uh, to the to the page, but really uh, the page is just to whet your appetite so that you can read this, this you know incredibly drawn book. Uh, I want to keep as much focus on that page as possible. Yeah. Uh, Or they can find me on Facebook, maybe. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Awesome. And what, and what about you, Scott? Where can people find you? My studio mate was distracting me. Um, (laughs) where, Where can people find you and your work on this wonderful, wonderful place we call the internet? Oh, well, um, yeah, for the work on The Last Patrol, you know, we want to be really careful and, um, and, and keep the distribution of that material, um, you know, kind of under wraps, you know, appropriately so. You know, we don't want to, to, to give out too much information too soon. Uh, so the Indiegogo page is, is the place to go for that content. Um, I have a website. It's www.scottmcdaniel.net. Uh, I have um, a, a huge section uh, on my website of drawing comics. If you just scroll down, there's a section of what I do. It's There's some artwork uh, that, that just sort of sample artwork from my career and you know, different covers and, and things that I've done over the years. And a, a, it's just a huge section of uh, drawing tutorials. You know, how do you do um, uh, dynamic figures? How do you do perspective? How do you design a character? How do you design a cover? And I, I've put together a, a huge um, section there that if you're an aspiring artist, you know, that, that's a really good place that you could go and just sort of read through and spend some time there and and really get to see uh, what it takes um, on, you know, from an insider's view uh, of, of doing this work. Uh, and, and so, yeah, and some social media stuff. But really, you know, 
Facebook is probably my primary. Uh, my website is my primary uh, for for that content. Now, with that, have you guys talked about the possibility of any other future collaborations after The Last Patrol? Because I know this is being published as a graphic novel. Have you looked at any other projects that you guys might be thinking of after this? We, that That's a good question. We talk. Uh, Scott and I talk frequently. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, ideally, I would love to do more of these, but from uh, other uh, service members experiences. Uh, and if they feel comfortable, you know, telling me about it, then they can email me, uh, you know, and we'll, we might find one that, that's a, that's a good story for another graphic novel. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to keep these, uh, if there's more of them as self-contained stories. Uh, just so each one is unique and kind of personal, to, to the individual that, you know, that these experiences happen to. Uh, I, I would hate for this to become something like uh, Sergeant Rock, where, you know, Sergeant Rock serves in World War II for like 90 years and uh, Ice Cream Boy never gets promoted. Uh, <laughs> poor guy. Captain America, you know, 80 years later is still a captain. Yeah. It makes it shows up with the name. You know, at this point, he should have been General America. Anyways. Uh, yeah, so I, I really think that these should be self-contained graphic novels if there's more of them, and I, I would love to do more of them. Uh, you know, and the, the the art part would be up to Scott if he wants to do more. Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, it's a, an intriguing question, and that possibility is always out there. Uh, it, it'll be really great to see how this one does, and if there seems to be you know people that really like this format, then yeah, I could see us doing more. And I do love uh, Travis's um, perspective on it. it. It makes a whole lot of sense to make these things self-contained one-shots because um, they're such they're so personal to the the people involved uh, that thematically they, they'd all tie together because they would all share that you know that military um, atmosphere in, in common. But uh, the stories themselves, uh, because they're isolated, I, I think it really makes them timeless uh, in in, a, in the best sense. And, and they would have to be, and from my point of view, they would have to be based off of somebody's actual experiences, uh, just because I would hate to write a story about, you know, uh, American soldiers in like the Korangal Valley in, in Afghanistan and get something totally wrong and, you know, disrespect the, the hard work and service and sacrifice of those guys that have actually been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To me, it just wouldn't be right, you know? Yeah. You know, there was – I I did this independent book for Black Box Comics called IT. It was about (coughs) an IT guy that worked in a bank. And um, there's no way – I wrote and drew uh, the first volume, which was uh, the first five issues. And there's no way in the world I could have written that without the insider knowledge of of a partner who actually worked in banking and uh, did that work and knew knew that work intimately. And, and so all that intimate knowledge that, that makes that authentic got into the story. Uh, and, and so, I, I mean, I, I see the direct corollary here that with with war. Yeah, I mean, you, you can watch war movies and, and you can read articles of, of, of war experiences, but really the the main creative content that needs to come from somebody who, who's lived it, who's been there. there there's an authenticity you cannot fake. Um, and, and so I, I love that that passion that Travis is going to bring to that, that if it continues, that's the way it's going to continue. Well, I think I was, I was just going to say it's really is that is that because it does add that legitimacy because otherwise it in a way, like you were saying, it could potentially cheapen those real things if you're just creating these stories without that background to work from. And mm-hmm. it really does add that legitimacy to have that. And it is better to tell that story when you have, tell that story when you have it instead of just trying to push that out month after month after month because then as that it becomes as less impact not only on the creator but on the audience and the reader themselves. It's going to shine through. Right. And, you know, that authenticity thing that we keep talking about, I, I really think that that's what made, like, Larry Hama's, 
run journey. I mean, defining uh, defining work on GI Joe as great as it was because of his time in the army. If that makes sense. It it totally does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's exactly the authenticity we're talking about. Yep. So with that, as we're, as we're bringing everything, as we're kind of wrapping things up, as we're kind of bringing it to a close, I'm really, I'm really excited about this. Like I saw this initially on your page, Travis, because I think, yeah, I just saw it was a post that you made. And I was like, holy crap, this looks awesome. And that pretty much just led to this. And so with that, for anyone who hasn't already, make sure to look up The Last Patrol on Indiegogo, support the book. Uh, get some really good some really good work out there because there's not enough of comics like this now that bring that that deal with some that deal with something that really does affect not not everyone on just a national scale but on a global scale and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. So so with that, uh, that brings the newest episode of Circuit Forty Two to a close. I wanted to say thank you again. Uh, Travis, thank you, Scott, for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ian, for having us. Thank you. All right. And with that, you all have a good night, everyone. And thank you for listening to the newest episode of Circuit 42.